You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On today's show, we sit down with Raymond Chen, who is a board member and current president of the Chinese Institute of Engineers San Francisco, a nonprofit volunteer organization. Prior to this, he spent 19 years in the electronic design automation software industry as the co-founder and senior vice president of Sigurdi, a company which he founded with his college professor. On today's show, we talk about, is the research in universities more advanced in the private sector or vice versa? What is electronic design software, EDA? And how does a software company protect its software from it being stolen or intellectual property infringement? And what is the Chinese Institute of Engineers? And much more. And also, Raymond has offered a special bonus. If you write a review on iTunes or other podcast platforms about this episode and share, which we'll talk about more at the end of the episode. So let's start. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Raymond, thank you for taking the time today to be on Silicon Valley. Oh, good to be here. Now, Raymond, can you tell us a little about your history before moving to Silicon Valley? All right, let me start back to 20, 30 years ago. <laughs> After I finished my freshman year at the Shanghai Jiao Tong University, I transferred to the University of New York at Binghamton. And there I finished my under and graduate school in electrical engineering. So my life can be divided into basically three portions, where the first 19 years of my youth in Shanghai, then eight years as a student in New York, now 21 years here in the Silicon Valley. The first time when I moved from Shanghai to New York is because my mom lives in New York City and I wanted to explore a different world. And just like many college kids at the time, you know, you want to get away from home and study in a faraway city where you think there the destiny mean bring many people and things you were meant to meet in your life. So I thought to travel to US and find my destiny. The second time when I moved from New York to California was for a startup that I, I co-founded, and we saw a great potential to be successful. So we moved from New York to Silicon Valley, where our customers are located, and we hired the first full-time employee that year, in 1999. Now, that company you started was with your professor. What led you to start a company with him? That's also an interesting question. The company named Sigurdi was started when I was 23, still as a graduate student. I knew a few university startup beginning with a professor or student humble, right? So it may not be unique, but each story is a little bit different. So here's my story. You know, when I came to the U.S. a student, I was accepted by Cornell and other universities. However, because you know my family could not afford the tuition, instead of going to a private Ivy League, I picked the State University of New York at Binghamton, where the tuition was drastically cheaper. And I remember the words on the Binghamton University's admission brochure highlighted that the school as a public Ivy League. So in certain ways, it is true because at Binghamton, I met a lot of good and hardworking students, but they cannot afford very expensive private institutions, so they can only attend the state university. That time, Professor Dr. Jia Yuanfang, who just finished his PhD from UC Berkeley and started to work as a young professor there in the EE department. For about a year already, he has been a hardworking and gifted scholar. At that time, I was just taking undergraduate EE class from him, and I did pretty well in his class. 
So one day I just knocked on his office door and asked to see if there are any research projects that I could help him with. That was、uh, how my journey began with him. You may ask me, you know, how could I, you know, have the confidence to introduce myself to a professor and ask for an opportunity? Here's, you know, my experience. At that time, I had been taking seven classes a semester while working for two side jobs just to make some money. I know cannot just wait for the opportunities to come. You must pursue them. One job I did was a convenience store clerk, where I worked as a cashier, making some sandwiches, cleaner, bookkeeper, and pretty much doing every job role that job requires. The other job、um, that I worked as a technician on campus. Installing campus network and also doing some of the computer and electronics repairman work. For that tech job, I didn't have you know much prior experience. I just worked for free the first semester and follow the staff there and learn all the skills at the field. Then the second semester they start to pay me. Basically, I like the way you try to sell yourself and approach to find your opportunity, like a job and the learning and sharpening your skill. And meeting new friends in a new environment. Actually, you know, my internship when I was a middle school student also helped me. That made me feel a little bit comfortable to step out of one's comfort zone and also find new opportunities and working with new people with some mentors. So come back to the question, you know, to the undergraduate study. At that time, the professor offered me a undergraduate research assistant job. I'm the only undergraduate assistant in his group. The problem we are studying, we were studying. Or was solving a some leading edge research topic. His research attracted the interest from the industry, research foundations, as well as government agencies. The support funding he received accounts almost more than one half of the entire EE department. So when I graduate as an undergraduate, as a top in my class, I start to look for graduate school. I did get accepted in Cornell again. However, after a lot of thought. I decided to not to leave SUNY Binghamton. The reason being is I clearly remember one day one of a senior professor who wrote my recommendation letter stopped by in the lab and chatted with me. He said, "Raymond, I think you should stay and follow with Dr. Fong because I think he is destined to be successful." So that's some kind of very short persuasive message, and that made me stay in the State University of New York Binghamton and continue. My research. So continued my graduate study there. After two years, I finished my master degree there, writing the essay about research topic we have been doing. But after the graduation of the master degree, I decided to work full time in this two-person startup as a co-founder. This was kind of against the advice from my family relatives, who thought I should look for a job in a big corporation. And also, I didn't continue my PhD study. This is kind of also against my mom's wish. I commit a hundred percent to the commercial success of this、uh, small startup. So Raymond, first off, EE electrical engineering, correct? And then I have to ask: in the research that is in the university, is that more advanced than what we see in the private sector, or is it the opposite, where the private sector is normally more advanced, more ahead of what's going on in the university research labs? The academic research in the university. Is very advanced because we learn the problems and challenges from the leading edge industry partners. The Binghamton area was the birthplace of IBM. You may know that our academic research goal was to study some of the fundamental issues 
at that time, uh, like IBM, Intel, or HP, and other top companies had commonly faced in their next generation product design. When we were studying those issues, the majority of the electro industry had yet to see or understand those problems. So we were very early to do research in that area. After we developed the solutions, a kind of very specialized software for electrical design, it is very early. It was like an earlier adopter's market. But fortunately, as we predict, with the advancement of the electronic design in the last two decades, those problems and challenges later on become very mainstream. And our solution all become widely adopted by almost all the companies who need to do electronic design. The novel method that we developed helped the advanced multi-gigahertz design with complex and a small geometry feature. One interesting thing, though, the foundation of the algorithm that models and simulates the real-world problem was based on a set of equations called the Maxwell equation of 150 years ago. The equation described the relationship between electrical and the magnetic fields and the waves, charges, currents, voltages, and the change of these variables in the time and the frequency domain with material property and the light propagation speed. So it sounds complicated. It is probably the most important equation related to today's technology world. Our research first helped us understand the physics of the general problem and the uniqueness of that issue. Then a special approach was developed to efficiently solve the Maxwell equation. That's about the research itself, nature of the research. So wait, Raymond, I got two questions for you then. I mean, one, can you talk a little bit more about the start of the company? And then also, can that lead into maybe a little bit more information on electronic design software, what EDA is? You just mentioned it. I'm very curious to know more. Well, sure. The company initially was a partnership between me and my professor. Later on, we incorporate so that we can issue stock option to employee. The company we did, folks, is kind of transfer the research in the university from a algorithm, new method, to a commercial success. So the company itself, we develop this potential method because we see a great way to make a success software to be used by the industrial partners. That's also the reason I didn't continue to do my PhD study because I want to commit 100% to make sure it can be successful. You know, in the research paper or student code, they can never be practical solutions. You really have to have a commercial company which is dedicated to develop by a software engineering approach to make the software practical, useful in the real industry. At that time, I was pretty good at programming. After the company really began to operate, I focus on the leadership and the solving business and the customer issues. So actually, I never coded again. All my effort was to lead the business into the next stage. Just had to give up something in order to learn a new skill. So that was the, the startup experience I had. The other thing is about the EDA business, right? The EDA is called Electronic Design Automation Industry. It is a category of software tools for design electronic systems such as integrated circuit, the IC, or printed circuit boards, PCBs. Only sophisticated software can manage those enormous tiny electrical circuits and the 3D geometric connections to ensure the logic and the physical correctness in the design for ever-increasing speed and the performance of those electronic systems and, of course, low power requirement. The companies around the world in semiconductor or computer, communication, networking, consumer electronics, 
automobile, space industry, they all need to use eDay software to design their products. Most dominant eDay software companies, there are only a couple of them actually in the US, and they are in here in Silicon Valley. And different eDay tools are used at various design stages. The company we founded called Sigwiti, its software covered a few areas such as design and analysis, modeling and simulation, signal and power integrity. That were the main area. So Raymond, when you and your professor left the university to start the company, how did you get the license? How does one get licensed for technology from a university? The university encouraged the research results to be commercialized in order to benefit the industry partners, research institute, and uh, the nation. A research paper, of course, as I said previously, is not a solution. Only a well-run company can help that, make it as a software. So university understood that principle and gave us a lot of support. The technology was patented. My professor was the inventor, and the university owned the right. And our startup company became the licensee to develop this technology into a commercial software and pay the royalty back to the university when we sell. So due to the success of our product, actually university ended up receiving a historical amount of royalty money. And we hired a lawyer to negotiate the terms with the university to ensure each side was protected at early on, right? So in case if we got acquired or if someone infringed the patent. So the early terms help that. And those well-thought clauses proved to be very useful down the road. Raymond, that's fascinating. I mean, there's so much technology being developed in the universities right now, and I'm sure there's a lot of entrepreneurs out there that want to be able to get that technology transferred and to build companies around it. But does that limit maybe resources for funding? I mean, what are the different phases of funding that a company can get for research and milestones that are needed to be met for that funding? I think we were very fortunate to obtain the seed money from NSF SBR grant. That's the National Science Foundation Small Business Innovation Research Program. The NSF SBR program uh, focuses on transforming scientific discovery into products and services with commercial potential and a social benefit. Unlike fundamental research, the NSF SBIR program supports startups and the small business in the creation of deep technologies, getting discoveries out of the lab and into the market. NSF gives you the money for free without asking for equity as a return. That's a very good part, right? So it is an excellent program from our government. We received all three phases of funding, 75K in phase one, 400K in phase two, and the 200K in phase 2B. That was considered a very good amount of seed money around the 1996, right, at that time before the internet boom. The NSF SBIR program funds research and development. The program is designed to provide the entrepreneur support at very early stage of a company for their prototyping and the technology development. The RD milestones need to be outlined in the proposal for you to get the funding. And the semi annual progress report need to be submitted. Sigwiti was a very successful story for this SBR program. And because of that, I was invited back to NSF SBR conference to share our company's story. I also have to ask, so it sounds like you never gave up equity. I mean, it sounds like you grew organically. What are the advantages and disadvantages of this? Besides the early seed money, 
we obtained from National Science Foundation. We also raised a million dollar from angel investment. Just as a cushion for our expanded business operation, we have always been, you know, cash flow positive, which is a fortune since the very beginning when we secured our first three customers: IBM, Intel, and HP Lab. We even self-funded two acquisitions during those years. The advantage without VC funding is, of course, no equity dilution. All the shares belong to the company and its employees, and you can have total control of your company. You can put your customers and the products as a priority and set long-term goals. Investors' goal sometimes, you know, it's different than the founders. While the investor may sometimes be more focused on the exit strategy in the shortest of one time frame possible. That's by nature, right? And、uh, I do have a friend's company that they were quickly sold after VC investment, and the VC brought on a high-profile CEO before reaching its full potential. So getting the outside funding sometimes may not line up with founders' goal. But however, there's also disadvantage, right? If we think we did get more outside funding, we may have more other choices because we could have had the advantage of growing bigger by acquisition if we have the funds instead of being acquired. At that time, when our company was acquired, actually we were thinking of acquiring another company as a target. But at that time, I knew. A lot less about investment or financial transactions. So that time, my own experience and network were very limited. Even though we grow the company organically, one step at a time, but the, we lack not have enough experience, or ability, or position to grow the company to a much larger corporation. So if you have outside funding with outside experience, probably those investors can bring strategic, much higher level vision to the company to help to grow. Out of your the, the original founders' capability. Today, now I think I know a little bit more people at the network, and then possibly who can invest tens or hundreds of million dollars. So the business expansion could be a very different story. So Raymond, you sold your company, but if you were to go back right now and kind of think about the whole strategy of acquisition or information you've gathered over the years, what information can you tell us or teach us about the whole acquisition experience, or what? You would do different now, or think about now. Definitely, there's something I can think of. If you do it, you may do it differently, right? One example first. Let me illustrate. Then I'll lead to why I think the differently is Yahoo and Alibaba deal they did in 2005. At that time, Yahoo was a much big company, and Alibaba was small. Yahoo himself acquired Alibaba. They give one billion dollar investment to Alibaba, and also they give the Yahoo China, the entire Yahoo China, to Alibaba to manage. In return, they ask 40% share of Alibaba's equity, and actually now this 40% share of Alibaba became more valuable than Yahoo itself. The lesson I learned there is typically a big company want to acquire you because they have money, but their product may be sold, but the startup has more talent in the team and the growing product. But the big company has the market; they have a lot of cloud, right? They can offer money to buy you. But if a big company just acquire you and merge with them, then The small company may lose some uniqueness over there. So if you have outside funding, if I would do differently, I may get some outside funding, and instead, just like the Alibaba Yahoo deal, you can acquire the big company at least or their business unit. So you, as a small company, you become the leader in that business unit. You take in charge with additional funding, so you can do this kind of sort acquisition to grow with the outside assistance. 
So Raymond, I forgot to ask at the very beginning, why move the company to Silicon Valley? Location, location, location. Tell me about this location. Why the location here was so important at that time? Silicon Valley is the center of EDA business. Most famous EDA companies are located within 20 minutes from this office, and the many electronics and companies, our customers, are here. And you can also find all the talents, business, technical in the Silicon Valley. I also have to ask. I mean, it's always in the news. It's always a big deal. Intellectual property IP protection. How does a software company protect its software from it being stolen and its IP intellectual property being infringed upon? When your software is used for, you will see pirate copies, right? The the worst part is nobody wants to you know steal your software. So though we use a commercial licensing solution such as a license server or hardware dongle and enhanced with our own scheme, it was still very hard to prevent piracy since you know hackers could crack the security at the root level. I saw some cracked versions of our software, some of the bulletin boards or forums. It's hard to pursue those situations, but we so more relied on our salespeople to work with our companies or customers to ensure they buy adequate amount of copies of our software. And also, we ran into situation when a public company tried to sell the products with very similar or the same technology we had patented technology. So in that situation, in general, you know. We at that time, as a small company, cannot match the financial and the legal resource of a big company. It's a challenge, right? But fortunately, in our case, the patented technology we licensed was from the university. So the university helped us and initiated a legal action, and in the end, successfully protected our interest. Wow, that's amazing that the relationship with the university stayed that long. And I never thought about. I mean, one, the resources that they have. That could be a very huge advantage to a startup. You built this company for years and years, but then you finally decided time to leave, time to sell it. What were the steps that led you to the sale of your company? You're talking about the entire the development, the life cycle of the company or our business during the 17 years, right? We tried many ways to expand business. We established more than 10 sales and support offices around the world. We have done. Acquisitions, for example, we acquired one business unit from a public company to become our own product line, and we have tried to merge with another small company so that we can become bigger enough for an IPO. But in the end, you know, we have studied the exit from other similar company. We have seen some of our successful peers, which reached three hundred million or eight hundred million dollar in size, and some of them had a very successful IPO on Nasdaq. But they all got acquired in the end because that's the reality and the cycle in the ED industry. Because there's only two or three very large public company exist, so small or medium company. In the end, they all got acquired. Interested. Once your company was acquired, what did you decide to focus your time on? Because I'm guessing you went from an 80-hour work week to now having some free time. How was that transition? Free time, I wish, because you know, <laughs> kind of retired of、uh, with the financial freedom. I'm still very busy because a family. I have three kids, as you know, so、I、spend a lot of time with the family members, and I do investment. There's a lot of financial investment or the technology startup investment I can talk about. Also, I coaching small startup, some of the portfolio company where I invested. I help them to 
give some suggestions to coach the CEOs about operation, about product development, sales, and marketing. And recently, I spent most of my time as a volunteer in a nonprofit organization called CIE. Before talking about CIE, Chinese Institute of Engineers, let's go back to what you just mentioned about investing in companies. Can you talk about some of the companies you've invested in and what they're working on? One of my invested company has a very interesting technology. It's a team from Taiwan, and they develop a unique medical device. You know, people doing a biopsy to confirm cancer or disease, and that process has been the same for the last hundred years. Doctor got an example from patient's body and do a biopsy by cutting the frozen sample and look under the microscope. So patient need to be on the operation table and wait for one hour just to get the sample frozen and cut and the, use the microscope to examine the cell level. So this company developed a new kind of device that can scan through the biopsy sample without needing to cut it at the micrometer level. And each layer scan through have a 3D data, a digital kind of 3D image at the cell level with high resolution. So it's kind of digitized the biopsy procedure. In a much quicker way, in few minutes, you will be able to see all the detail that confirm whether you have a cancer cell or not. So that will revolutionize the entire diagnosis procedure, make it much quicker and digitized and、uh, efficient. So this is one of the portfolio company I invest and also I work with CEOs try to how to bring this universal research also from university. Into a commercial product because a good breakthrough product, technology product like that, is very promising. But、uh, sales into a hospital or a research institute actually is totally different story. And then when you're working with these companies, I mean, you have this 17 years of experience. How is the dynamics between you and maybe the CEO of this company that this is their first startup? They may not have any working experience outside of the university. How do you coach them? How do you mentor them? What's that relationship look like? First, as a friend, those companies I invest not only because I look at the potential, their product, mainly also the people. I don't just look at financial return things. Of course, this has to be the goal. More likely, is I have my personal interest in there. So we are the founder. We share the same passion for those product, for the business. So we can talk, we can relate. And many of my past experience during my company time. Are the similar issues that the other CEOs or the founders they will encounter. So we can quietly relate to each other. So what I need just share my story, and they can understand. And the solution or the choices or suggestions I provided usually feel very useful. So just like friend talking, chatting, and tell them what I see during my time, and they appreciate that. So it's quite easy going on situation there. And then I also I'm kind of curious. How do you find out about these companies? Are you looking at research papers? Are you networking, or are people coming to you and saying, "I have an interesting idea," or "This is a company I'm working on," or is it a network that you've built? I'm not a full-time investor, so I don't really go through many cases or listen to pitches, ten roadshows. Mainly, it's a friend recommendation because the founding team at those companies refer to me. As friends, so I need to know their personality as well, and then they approach me, and if I feel interest, had a click, then we start to work together. 
And you had mentioned before CIE, Chinese Institute of Engineers. Can you talk a little bit about that organization, its history, a little bit more about it? Yeah, as I tell you, even though the investment or coding startups, they are occupied probably less than one third of my time. So most of my major effort was putting into this a nonprofit, a volunteer organization. The Chinese Institute of Engineers (USA) is an organization for Chinese American engineers, scientists. And other professionals. It was founded in 1917, which is more than 100 years ago. The objective of the CIE USA are to promote science, engineering, technology, and mathematics (the STEM), encourage professional advancement and leadership development for Asian Americans. As one of the oldest and the most prestigious Chinese American engineer association in the U.S., CIE has seven area chapters across the nation. And holds many events, and actually we just had a few events last weekend, and we're gonna have one more seminar this Wednesday. Besides those monthly events in each every local region, we also have a major annual awards and conferences at the national level. And then Raymond, what is your position in this amazing organization? My current role in CIE is a board member and also the president of the CIE Silicon Valley chapter. How I start to Get to know the CIE USA is also introduced by friend because one of my friend was a CIE board member. He knew that I was retired, and he asked, "Why don't I just help out at this nonprofit organization?" Back to 15 years ago, I gave a lecture at one of the CIE events as a speaker, and also I participate in some of their amazing events. So I know a little bit about who they are, what they did. So after my company got acquired, I have some free time, as you mentioned. So I. Start to volunteer in that organization just as a regular volunteer. Then later on, about four years ago, I become a board member, and then move on to become the secretary, then vice president, and now become the president of the CIE USA Silicon Valley chapter. So in CIE Silicon Valley chapter's 40 years history, I'm the 40th president. Raymond, congratulations on being the 40th president. But I gotta ask. With all this wisdom that you have from all this experience, what advice do you have for the next generation of engineers, or entrepreneurs, or children in general that are growing up right now that one day might want to kind of follow in your footsteps? What advice can you give them? Probably, I can just use some of the tips I give to my own kids, right? Based upon my personal experience during the school years and how I started a company with my professor. First, you want to learn a skill. Even without pay, that's okay because that's my technician job experience. You work for free, you learn the skills, and the second, work in some of the small job roles, learn how to deal with various customers, just like I work in a convenience store as a clerk. Third, you always want to find a job yourself, find the opportunity yourself, learn how to sell you as a person, your skill set and your charisma. Fourth, if you can afford, of course, you can go to an Ivy League, but even if you cannot, that's okay. A student university could provide you all the opportunities in your life. So basically, any school environment allow you to shine. The last one, find the mentors or teachers who can appreciate your ability and your character, and who can give you important advice. Then follow them. So I think you know grasping the opportunity is very very important. Transition is important. Starting early, of course, is a big plus, and doing the things you are passionate is important. One of my professor I remember in the school when I did a PhD to the startup actually is due to his advice. Another professor, because one time 
He said, "Oh, Raymond, I thought you are, you know, pretty good and had the potential to do business well. So maybe you should not just study PhD. Actually, that's a professor, right?" He said, "Maybe you should learn some business management." So the professor sometimes give you interesting topic suggestions. So how about the opportunity-wise? One very important thing is you want to grasp them while if you can. One thing I did in as an undergrad student is I met my beautiful wife at a school party. That's amazing how fate just kind of works out. And, and Raymond, are there any events coming up with the Chinese Institute of Engineering? Any big events that if someone wants to go to or find out more about the organization that you might be able to mention? I do want to tell the audience some of the important, amazing events we're gonna have. One of them is we are currently. Preparing the 2020 AAEOY Award and Conference. AAEOY stands for the Asian American Engineer of the Year. It's an annual event on a national platform to recognize and honor outstanding Asian American professionals in science and engineering for their technical achievements, leadership, and public services. The past awardees included nine Nobel laureate, an astronaut. University or academia leaders and corporation executives, and etc. CIE Silicon Valley chapter, our chapter, is hosting this event, and I'm currently the AAEOY National Committee Chair. So we are quite busy planning all the event activities. It'll be a two-day program, so you can find more about this event at aaeoy.org. Great. And Raymond, if anyone wants to find out more information about you or get in contact with you, what's the best way to go about doing that? May find me on LinkedIn. <laughs> you can search first name Raymond R A Y M O N D space Y U Z H E, and you should be able to direct message me even without connecting. And then I also want to thank Raymond one more time for his time. And Raymond's also offered a special gift for a few events coming up for the Chinese Institute of Engineers. If you write a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or other platforms about this episode and share, we'll put your name in a raffle to get a coupon code for one of these events. So like and share. And once again, Raymond, thank you again for your time today on Silicon Valley. It's good to have me here. Thank you, Xiao. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only and is licensed by the Investors Podcast Network. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.